Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club, and this is your show. And just like that, we are back. The World Cup is over and domestic football returns, and so does the Blue Moon podcast, fresh from success at the FSA Awards. If you think it's cringeworthy that I've mentioned that so early in this show, then it's the first one back. Then brace yourself for the next hour and a bit. I've waited eight years to win that prize. I'm not going to shut up about it anytime soon. So on this week's episode of the award-winning podcast, we'll take a look at the games coming up in City's return to action. Nice and easy with the first one with the Carabao Cup tie against Liverpool before next week's trip to Leeds gets us back into the Premier League saddle. Also this week, we'll discuss Pep Guardiola's contract extension and Adam Carter from StatCity.co.uk has been digesting the numbers of each of City's 500 games played at Eastlands, so stay tuned for that. I'm David Mooney and I am joined by City fans Joe Butterfield. Hi, how's it going? Not too bad, thanks Joe. Welcome back. And Rachel Hudson. Hey, how are we doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, all good, thank you. Good, good. Uh, well, let's uh, let's kick off with uh, with the action, uh, Rachel. I mean, uh, it's it seems weird to have had such a break in the middle of the season. Um, how ready for the game? Uh, well, first off, two questions: How ready do you get for the game? Do you think City will be when it comes to uh, to Thursday night? And how ready are you for the return of City? Uh, I, I'm ready. I just want to, you know, I think we always say you're only as good as your last game, and the last game was awful, wasn't it? <laughs> Thankfully, we've got you know we've had the, a few weeks to try and sort of put that to the back of our mind, but. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more than ready. As for how ready the players are going to be, well, you know, a, a lot of them I don't think have necessarily covered themselves in glory during the World Cup. I don't think other than Alvarez that we've had a, a real standout City performer. How much is taken out of the players? Not sure. You know, you've got the likes of, of Calvin Phillips, for example, who I'm assuming is now fully fit and really has had what amounts to a, you know, a mid-season break. So, you know, I think we'll be ready. I think we should have enough in the engine. But at the same time, we've got, a, this is just the start of a really busy schedule, isn't it, over the next few weeks? We've got Liverpool, then I think all the fixtures come thick and fast. Leeds, Everton, Chelsea twice, United, Spurs. So, you know, it's just, this is just the start of it now. So I'm, I'm expecting to see quite a lot, a lot of squad rotation to deal with that. Yeah. Um, Joe, I'm not going to lie. When Rach puts it like that, um, I'm not actually sure I'm that ready for it to come back now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I was I was looking at it before and, I, and for me, the strangest thing is that obviously it, it's really weird to say that this has been, this this November, December period has actually been quite easy on the players, I think, compared to what, we'd, what a normal Premier League season would be like. I mean, you think about the number of games that they would have played between the break on was it the was it the 13th or 14th of November the, the the last game I think it was if you think about the sort of the, the gap between then and now how many games in all competitions probably would have been played by a lot of these players you'd be looking at at least 10 maybe yeah, maybe a 10, dozen 12 yeah yeah and and everyone's played like I think for, with the exception of Alvarez who's obviously gone all the way I think and even he's only played seven so yeah, maybe it's maybe it is quite high intensity and in pretty in a pretty short space of time. But then you compare that to what they would have been doing in this time period if they weren't at a World Cup. It's obviously you know they've they've, they've had quite a big break. If anything, I think like I think um, as Rachel's kind of said there, like the, the the real worry is then how that means the fixtures are going to really pile up horrifically badly once we once we come back with obviously an Arsenal and a Spurs game to to fit into that schedule as well that we should have had in the first half before the break. So um, yeah, it's a bit. 
it's a bit it's more a bit sort of wary of what's to come but i think at the moment i think i'm i'm quite ready i'm quite ready for the football to be back i think obviously the world cup is the world cup and it's always a nice it's always a nice different competition obviously to have it mid season is is really weird as well but i think i'm definitely nothing nothing hits quite like manchester city for me even the england games that we watched aren't really the same as you know i don't have that same investment as i do when i'm watching manchester city so i'm i'm, yeah. I'm quite ready for that to come back now yeah, Rach. I mean, you've you've alluded to it to the the potential tough fixtures after Christmas. Um, are, are you worried about fatigue? Not necessarily in the next couple of games, but actually, maybe you know, next couple of months, couple of months down the line. Yeah, I think you know, as Joe's just said, we had a, a probably a less intensive period than had we just had the full sort of Premier League, Champions League, and, and cup schedules. I think what the other thing is. You've got to remember, up until November, we were probably playing midweek every single week, weren't we, to get the Champions League done and dusted as well. Yeah. Um, so I think come March, April, it'll be interesting to see how much we've, we've got left in the tank. But this is where having a squad comes into its own. And if and if we can't cope with that, then, OK, we might have had more players at the World Cup than anybody else. But at the same time, I think, you know, our, some of our superstars haven't necessarily, like I say, either really performed at the World Cup or they've not even gone in, the, you know, for starters. So, for, for example, t- tomorrow, Harlan is a no-brainer. He will start and having had a, you know, a, a full, what, four, six weeks off, I'm really excited to see what, what he'll do. He'll be chomping at the bit, I'm sure. Yeah, I was going to say this, Joe. I mean, are you expecting for Liverpool that the team will effectively be, you know, Kevin De Bruyne, Erling Haaland and nine others? Yeah, I had a look at, I had, I had a look at our... You know the, the 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 team we put out against Girona, and I think you're really sort of struggling, aren't you? Really, it literally is. It's 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 Gundogan, De Bruyne, Haaland, Mares, and then mm-hmm. other than that, you're looking at you're looking at kids and squad players from that point on. I mean, obviously, I'm assuming by by the time the Liverpool game comes around, we may have one or two more of the people who went out in maybe the round of sixteen, possibly back with the team, but they won't have had more than a couple of days training at very at, at absolute most. Um, the centre backs is more the real problem. So we, we we literally played two kids at centre back against Girona and Diaz Laporte. Actually, Laporte went out. They went out in the round of sixteen, didn't they? Spain against Morocco. So yeah. they, you know, they, they he might be back early. But I think um, you know Diaz Ake went out the following round. Stones went out the following round. So if if, if they're back, they're literally just going to be sort of flown back into Manchester, and the next day it's like right, you're starting against Liverpool now. So. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be quite tricky. I would say that we we'll, we'll probably be looking more towards the, the the kind of Sergio Gomez and you know Cole Palmer and stuff like that. They're the kind of players that will be more more looking towards to to help pad out this squad. But I think there's a couple of positions where you just sort of genuinely just hoping that a, a senior player is going to come back off the plane fit and ready to go because otherwise we're going to be looking at like playing two or three kids who've probably never kicked a first team ball for city before to 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 make it actually a possible a, a possible team that actually is capable of playing in the positions they're put in yeah, but that's one good thing that we've not actually sustained any major injuries during the World Cup either that's going to derail us. I mean, look at Arsenal and Jesus being out now. That is a big blow, body yeah. blow for them, isn't it? So so you sort of thank heavens for small mercies in terms of, OK, well, they've not actually been, you know, outstanding. However, everybody's come back fit. So you've got to be pleased for that. And, and the other big thing is as well, I don't know about you, Joe, but when um, all our centre-backs are fit, I've absolutely no idea who Pep is going to plumb for anyway 
no um, idea. You know, really, really, really haven't got a clue who our best back two combo is these days. And in, in part, I think it's a bit of a shame because I, I get that, you know, when I, when I look at some of the, you know, the, the league winning teams in the past, it was always around having that two central you, you you knew who your back four were and it was maybe the full back swapped out but you knew who your two center backs were week in week out you know i'm thinking about company and lescott for example barring an injury they were there now mm. i just don't i just don't know who are who pep's favored to are it, it feels like diaz is a little bit out of favor to me not quite sure why i don't think okay that his form wasn't necessarily as great as it had been in his first season but it's certainly not dropped off to the point that um, you know, he, he seems to be well out of favour, which in some ways I'm glad that he, he didn't. Again, for me, I don't think he really shone at the World Cup, but I'm quite glad about that because if he had, and then it would give Pep that, you know, I think he would then think that he'd be entitled to a, a starting place that just absolutely isn't guaranteed at City. Yeah. Is it bad, Joe, that I forgot Mares until you said him? <laughs> it's a little, it's a little bit. I'm more, I'm more shocked you forgot Gundogan to be honest. Yeah, okay. I completely forgot that he came home early with Germany. I, I, in my I, head, I'm just thinking, oh, Germany must have done well. And then yeah. this is this is where kind of the problem comes in with the starting eleven because because I think only really Gundogan um, and De Bruyne, and there might be one or two more that I'm forgetting, but I think they're the only two sort of big players that went out in the in the group stage. I think everybody else went out in the sort of round of sixteen or the quarterfinals. In which case, you know. You're looking at you're looking at most players probably only coming back on the day of or the day before the Liverpool game, which isn't really it's what it's not really what you want for going into a game. Because I looked at so I looked at Liverpool's team because they've played a couple of friendlies before before this, and they, I'd say they've got a very good. They, they put ten of the start in eleven was the same for both games, so you know you can pretty much guess Liverpool's lineup based on that. But they had a back four of um, of Milner, Matip, Gomez, and Robertson. So that's pretty much, you know, that's that's very close to a strong, uh, their strongest back four. They had um, Elliot and Thiago in midfield and Salah and Firmino up front. So Liverpool are looking, obviously, off the back of the fact they've not had many of their star players, despite you know, despite obviously all being the best in their respective positions in the world, as as we all know. <laughs> um, not not many of them going to the World Cup is probably going to be a bit of a boost for them going into this game, and uh, you know that, that you might see from. My prediction for this game later on that that probably reflects that, but I think you know Liverpool certainly go into this in a much better state than we do, just purely off the back of the numbers that we had going into this World Cup compared to everybody else, which was which was always going to be in the, which was always going to be the case in the first one or two games back from the World Cup for us to be honest. But yeah, it's um, it's it's a bit scary when you see that other that Liverpool are willing are able to put out maybe six or seven of their strongest eleven in a game like this. Yeah, Rachel. I'm just wondering if this is uh, weirdly the ideal tie to to kind of bring City back into the post World Cup part of the season. It's a tough opponent, but they're at home. It'll be a high intensity game. It's a competitive match, and it's not actually a disaster if City lose this. No, it's a Mickey Mouse Cup if we lose, isn't it? And <laughs> the, the, the reality is, it's probably our our fourth priority. I know that sounds ridiculous because a trophy is a trophy, and we've grown up in an era where we would have done anything for a trophy. But the reality is where we are now, it's our fourth priority. If we get knocked out, out like you say, it ain't the end of the world. But but for me, you know, we, we do a win against these. The number of times that they've played us recently, and for whatever reason, have just had so much luck. Um, I mean, I know you can say you make your own luck, and our goalkeeping errors and the and, and, and line up again in the FA Cup didn't necessarily help last year. But for me, I just want to shut down the conversation of them winning the quadruple early last 
March, April, May was just unbearable. Picking, you know, looking at newspapers, anything on the media, turning on the radio, everything was about this historic quadruple. And I just think, let's just shut that talk down as quickly as we can. Yeah, I think, I mean, they do feel quite a way behind in the title race. So let's, let, let, mm. I, I, I do understand, don't count any chickens there yet, but uh, it does it does feel like it's a City-Arsenal uh, title race. Um, just a, one final word on uh, the World Cup, Rachel, before we move on. Um, a, a quick word for Julian Alvarez, who has come back a World Cup winner. Um, I, I, he's he's had a hell of a, of a 12 months or so, hasn't he? Yeah, incredible. And it's it's mad because obviously all the attention has been around Haaland and I think there were a group of, of us amongst the sort of educated, those who were really engaged and interested who say, hang on a minute, you know, we've signed the most promising player from South America who's got some ridiculously phenomenal goal scoring record. Don't forget about him as well. Um, and obviously Haaland's come in and he's reached these heady hikes and that's absolutely fantastic. But Alvarez has just been just as sensational in his own way for me in, in the game, in the playing time that he's had. And he's just gone on and proved that at the World Cup as well. No, no, no City fans were surprised by his performances. Yeah, Joe, he's been, uh, he's been a revelation, I think, in a, in a weird way. Haaland being there has, has allowed him to shine. It's, it's meant that there's been no pressure on him to come in and be the centre forward, hasn't it? Yeah, if you if if we'd have only just signed him in the summer and no and not Haaland, and we were sort of looking for him to to score all the goals, then like you say, there would be a lot more pressure on him. We'd be in a position where you know maybe scoring, maybe the scoring record that he's already got in terms of goals to games ratio, maybe maybe we almost look at that and go, that's probably not enough. Um, but I think yeah, like like you say, with the way that Haaland's come in and sort of done that, he's done the you know the scoring more goals than games played he's he's doing that which means that Alvarez coming in and scoring I don't know what his goals to game ratio is but scoring for every you know maybe one in two that that's absolutely fine for a backup striker that's that's which he currently is and hopefully he'll grow into a bit more of a position where I I, kind of see him playing maybe a bit more off the right sometimes I just think the way that he presses is a bit it's, it's probably it's probably about as close to Gabriel Jesus as you can get, except he's actually got finishing ability on top of that. Hmm. Um, I think you know I can see him maybe maybe doing that role out wide, especially seeing as our current only real idea, our current only serious right wing option at the moment is Riyad Mahrez, and he's not having the greatest season so far. So I can maybe see Alvarez moving into that at some point in the season. In which case, you know, it's just good to have someone there who you know is also capable of putting the ball in the back of the net and even just bringing him off the bench and knowing there's every chance he can score, bringing him in for those sort of Champions League games against, you know, Copenhagen and Sevilla and stuff like that. Um, or in the Carabao, like, you know, if he, if, 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 if Haaland, if it wasn't the situation we're in now and this was just a normal midweek game in the middle of a season, being able to rest Haaland for a game like this and bring in Alvarez, knowing that you've still got a genuine serious goal threat up front that's that's what we've been crying out for for a long time because I think even when we had Aguero, there was always the feeling that behind him, Gabriel Jesus was was good, but in terms of goal contributions, in terms of scoring the goals, you never really felt that confident that he would be able to do it. Whereas I think we've seen enough from Alvarez so far, even just from his time at City, not even ignoring the World Cup and how minty he's been there. You know, just from his time at City, you've seen that he's able to, he's definitely able to put the ball away as well as actually being able to do the pressing side of the game that Pep loves. 
Yeah, and I think Guardiola wants to get him alongside Haaland as much as he can this season. He seems to keep trying mm. that, and it seems to be uh, to be doing wonders for the pair of them. Um, now, before we move on, uh, we've seen that Jack Grealish has been enjoying himself in New York City. If you've not seen his Instagram stories, uh, then go and have a look. He's having a whale of a time. He's admitted to loving Home Alone 2 and has been seeing the sights from the movie. Now, joining us now is Aaron Miller from On Location Tours in New York. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Um, Jack Grealish, obviously in uh, in New York at the moment, enjoying his his tours of uh, of Home Alone. Uh, what is it that he'll be seeing right now? Yes, so in New York City, he will pass by Bethesda Terrace in Central Park. So this is where Kevin sneaks away into a back of a horse drawn carriage by the fountain and manages to sneak away from Marv, played by Daniel Stern, and Harry, played by Joe Pesci, who have chased him all through the park. Um, He will also pass by within Central Park Gapstow Bridge, um, which I'm sure you'll remember as where Kevin meets the pigeon lady at the beginning of the movie. And then at the end of the film, we see him finding her again, giving her the turtle dove as a special Christmas gift. Um, he will also pass by the famous Plaza Hotel, which I'm sure everybody has heard of. This is where Kevin stays while he's full on lost in New York. This was actually shot at the Plaza in a Central Park suite. And the phone number given was an actual working phone number at the time. So kind of a fun fact about the Plaza. This is the only well, the only Plaza Hotel scene that was not filmed on location was the swimming pool scene. So there's actually no swimming pool at the Plaza. So if you're thinking about staying there during the holidays, um, just remember <laughs> that there is no pool. <laughs> there's no pool. That, is that is that where he meets Donald Trump? Yes. So this is actually the scene where Donald Trump is walking through the lobby. So that is actually Donald Trump for everyone who's wondering. <laughs> a little yeah. cameo. <laughs> yeah, uh, Rachel, um, you've seen Grealish's Instagram stories. Uh, it's, it's, he's like a kid. At, well, he, he is a kid at Christmas, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's enjoying himself and good luck to him. I mean, he does seem to be somebody who enjoys life full stop. Um, you know, I always I always enjoy his, his post-match interviews because he's just got that joie de vivre about him all the time, hasn't he? He seems to just be loving life. And, and why wouldn't you be? But, um, but yeah, good luck to him. He's obviously deserved some, some time off, a bit of rest. So, um, yeah, we're, we're better to spend it than New York. Yeah. Joe, are you, uh, have you been to New York or are you a Home Alone fan? One of the two or both? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, it's, it's a it's a no to neither. I've never I've never been to New York, and I've I've I'm probably gonna people are gonna think I'm really weird for this. I've never seen a Home Alone film in my I, life. It's I've, okay. I've neither have I. Seen... It's okay. Neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen one or two. Um, so yeah, no, I think um, it's, I've got to say I'm impressed by the, how 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 you've got that the the, the memorized you know itinerary of New York. Though it's crazy. <laughs> I'm, very, I'm very impressed. Yeah, Aaron, uh, how popular are these locations? Uh, I mean, it, it, we've seen Grealish has been really excited when he's got there. Like, like I said to Rach, he's been a kid at Christmas. Yeah, no, these locations are super popular, not only because they were featured in the movie, but because most of them actually are iconic New York City tourist landmarks. Um, so like the famous tree in Rockefeller Center, people go there every holiday season in New York to see that, um, which is also in the film. So we always like to say people see New York before actually seeing New York, because all these holiday classes were actually filmed, um, filmed in Manhattan. Yeah. Well, uh, what, what we'll try and do, we'll try and get Jack Grealish on uh, on on with you and see if we can uh, see if we can get him as a tour guide for his uh, for the summer. See if we can uh, we, we we can get you some extra hands. Someone someone who's really into uh, New York and uh, and Home Alone too. Yes, we'd love it. Erin, <laughs> uh, thank you very much for joining us. Erin uh, Miller from On Location Tours in New York. Um, thank you for indulging my uh, my silliness. Thank you so much for having me. Happy holidays and happy New Year. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, 
offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Now, you can always rely on City to underperform on the big occasions. Uh, the final game at Main Road, yep, yeah, they lost that. The first game at Eastlands, they would have lost that, but for a last-minute equaliser. The 100th game at Eastlands, yep, yeah, lost that too. That was Tottenham in the League Cup, 2-0 in 2007. The last game there was number 500, and, well, you remember it well, they lost to Brentford. I've been speaking to Adam Carter from statcity.co.uk to discuss all the milestones of the last 500 home games. I think the fact that we're almost contesting in all competitions towards the end of every season now you're going to get those extra quarterfinals those extra semi-finals that perhaps we didn't expect uh, in the earlier seasons at the stadium so yeah it definitely crept up on us and uh, it's been a nice little um, project to d- dive into those numbers a bit deeper so it's been interesting yeah, I said in the queue that uh, City tend to lose on the big occasions. Like I said, last yeah. game at Main Road, <laughs> lost that. You know, uh, 500th game most recently, lost that one uh, to Brentford. Uh, the landmark games, uh, do they t- do they just tend to lose them? Is that what City is that what City do? Well, if we're classing every hundred or fifty and two fifty games, that's about nine landmarks. We've lost three of the nine landmarks there you alluded to there the 500th the 100th and even the 10th game there just to throw some extra spice into it so we have got an okay record when it comes to the big numbers the 400th game was against arsenal a 3-1 win you look before that it was the southampton game a 2-0 win in 2015 i think that was lampard's and milner's last game so we did have a we had a rocky start with the landmark games a bit of a nice period and then we were back down to earth with that Brentford uh, game just before the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. Um, goal. Let's talk goal scorers because uh, obviously 500 games. Uh, if you were to ask me which player had scored the most goals there, I mean, the hunch has got to be Aguero given, given the number of goals that he scored for anybody else. But but who's, who gets nearest to him? Well, so Aguero scored the most goals at the Etihad with 149, as you rightly said. That's 80 more than any other player. Um, next in line being Raheem Sterling. So, but Aguero's rate is 0.7 goals per game at the, at the stadium. So that's just ridiculous. So he deserves, he thoroughly deserves that statue that's uh, nicely placed outside there. Yeah, yeah. Where's Tevez on the list? Is he near the top? Um, he is fifth um, in terms of goal scored. Tevez was 49. He was probably the likeliest to be the early leader before we got to the Agueros and the Haaland kind of levels of striker. But he's fifth behind Gabriel Jesus on 53 goals, so. And then De Bruyne and Sterling top make up the rest of the top five. But interestingly, for those who like angel numbers and repetitive patterns, there's been 111 different goal scorers, so 111 different goal scorers that they had to had as well. Yeah, so that's name a nice little. <laughs> I'm sure that's a Patreon special or something coming up. Yeah, no, we've we've had trouble with you on naming things on quizzes in the past. I'm not going to make you do that. Don't worry. Um, are there any? Are there any kind of uh, when 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 you look at the numbers? Are there any anything that uh, that particularly stands out as uh, as highlights of the of the 500 games? Yeah, there's been there's been a few. Obviously, I can tend to sometimes look at the negative things. Um, 
there's been eight teams that we've played at least uh, we've played at the Etihad and not won at least one game against them, but they've all been European teams. You think of the likes of Leon and Juventus and people where we we don't get as much opportunity to re- revenge those defeats. So that uh, that was one that spread out. There's eight teams that have come and we've not managed to win against them. But also there's 65 different opponents we've played against who we've never lost against. So that's 68% of the opponents we've faced at that stadium. Uh, they've never won against us. And West Brom, kind of the most unsuccessful team there. They've played 12 times and they've never beat us. So to flip those kind of things, 68% of the opponents we've faced that haven't haven't beaten us there. So I like that kind of stat as well. Yeah, just thinking of the teams that, that we haven't beaten there. I mean, you mentioned yeah. Leon. Weirdly, I don't know why this is the case, but the first team that came into my head for um, for this one was Michelin. Um, yeah, that's must another. be on the list. I, yeah, I, no, I, yeah. I think back to, I, I must think back to the, it's it's the European runs under uh, Keegan and uh, Hughes that, that, that must do a lot of the damage in that list. Yeah. Am I right? Correct. And then it's just annoying that we might never be able to avenge those uh, low, low moments uh, again because... You'd hope that we're going to be continuing to play against the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid, et al. in coming seasons. But um, And also, um, there's only one team, a domestic team. Now, obviously, if we put those European uh, disappointments to one side in the early days, there's only one domestic team that we haven't outscored at the Etihad, and that's Middlesbrough. So that's they've had <laughs> <Obviously>. a few. <laughs> they've had a few good uh, displays at our place, annoyingly. Yeah, we've both scored seven against each other against Middlesbrough. So I'll be keeping an eye out for the next time we get drawn against them, or if they come back up and we play them at their Etihad to be hopefully outscoring them on the next occasion because that's seven each. So we're tied on that one. Yeah, have we finally got the better of Leicester? Because Le- Leicester always <laughs> seems, seems to be the one that, that when I think back to, it, they always seem to have beaten us at the Etihad. Yeah, luckily we have avenged uh, Leicester over recent times. Um, they had that big win during the COVID lockdown period, but we now stand at seven wins against Leicester, a draw to their three. But they're almost, they had two wins in quick succession against us, which kind of like blew us, blew us wide open in terms of having to chase them to get supremacy back on our own patch. But yeah, Leicester did seem to have a hold on us. You think of Dickoff when he came back and scored against us. Then you've got uh, the title winning season where Mares kind of put himself in the shop window, if you will, then recently. Um, during COVID when they turned us over as well. So they were always scoring more than us and we were chasing up, but we have caught up now in those stakes. Good, good. I like it when uh, when City <laughs> get back on top like that. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk discipline at the stadium. Um, yes, because uh, obviously there's there's been some uh, some memorable moments when it comes to discipline. Um, somehow Ben Thatcher doesn't lead the red cards <laughs> list. Um, I, I I wondered who did because off, yeah. off the top of my head, all I can think of is uh, I can I can think of Joey Barton being sent off uh, a couple of times, both you know playing for City and famously against City. Uh, but other than that, it's Fernandinho who I can think of as. as as the player that that seemed to be in the most trouble, he, he got like three red cards in like six games in the in a, in a, in a, in a really short spell in Guardiola's first season. Yeah, it must must have been something in the water there. Yeah, it is indeed Fernandinho. He's been the most sent off player at the Etihad. That's four times. Um, Richard Dunn coming up second in th- three times. So they've oh, been yeah. really they've been really uh, <laughs> fighting for that one. And with company Vincent company being the most booked player 33 times so yeah definitely a bit of red mist during that period that you alluded to around Fernandinho's discipline and company and Dunn they're kind of the three bad boys if you will if we have any new new um statues around the other side it might be those three and company gets two <laughs> one for being amazing and also one for being booked the most times yeah I mean it, there's there is a there is something in it being booked a lot but not sent off I'm, I'm quite happy with that yeah That's, true uh, yeah, the, yeah. almost the dark arts almost. yeah life on life on the edge life on the edge <laughs> <laughs> um, 
while we're while we're uh, on uh, figures and stuff like that, uh, let's talk mm. hat tricks uh, because yeah. uh, you posed the question to me ahead of this: uh, who scored the first hat trick at uh, at the Etihad? And my gut instincts was Robbie Fowler against uh, Scunthorpe, but it was a lot yeah. earlier than that, wasn't it? Yeah, we'd be looking at Nicholas and Elker in the first season against Aston Villa, um, which you you were a, a hung up in hospital at that point, so maybe that's why it <laughs> eluded your, yeah. uh, your your memory, but. Yeah, Anilka set set the trend, but then in terms of hat tricks thereafter, um, it, although he only joined us this season, Erling Haaland makes up eight percent of the hat tricks ever scored at the Etihad <laughs> Stadium, having scored three of the last four there, and uh, Sergio Aguero accounts for thirty one percent of all hat tricks scored at the Etihad. So there's kind of a nice little tr- trio just to uh to wrap that one up perfectly. Yeah. Nearly half of all the hat tricks there are Haaland and Aguero. That must be yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Guardiola must have uh, must be the manager with the best record there. Um, it, uh, there's there's surely no getting away from that, is there? Yeah, in terms of um, he's, although he's taken charge of the most games as well, so I've converted it to percentages just to give a fair crack of the whip to all the other managers, and it's not even close. So Guardiola is responsible for forty percent of the victories at the Etihad Stadium, despite only taking charge of thirty-four percent of the matches that have ever taken place there. <laughs> so that just shows the levels. It's just I was I was trying to skew it by goals per game, um, you know, just to give some kind of competition to any other manager. Goals per game, um, wins, win percentages, and things like that. But if you if you look at it in a like for like basis, he's still well well out in front. Yeah, um, and here's one I. I, I almost guarantee you haven't looked this up because this is a <laughs> this is one that I am obsessed with. Um yeah. players that have scored for City at the Etihad and for the opposition. Um every now and then a name adds itself to the list and you, and you think goodness me they you know they've they've joined that list. Um yeah. do you know who the first was? No, but you've stumped so I I'm only because I'm proper Bertie Blue, I've only got blue glasses on, so I only ever keep stats that are for City and <laughs> nothing against. So you're going to have to enlighten me on that one. Well, it's very quick because uh, it was Nicholas and Elka, um, one of the first players to uh, to return with uh, with Bolton, and then uh, obviously it's, it's, uh, he'd scored a hat trick for uh, for City against Aston Villa and scored plenty of times, you know, for Chelsea yep. since. So yeah, uh, plenty, yeah. plenty of those other names that that I can think yeah. of off the top of my head on that list. You got the likes of Adebayor. Um, yep. scoring for Arsenal and then then for City, you know Milner's done it for Liverpool and uh, and City. There's there's yep. plenty there. I mean, you mentioned Milner as uh, as the player that's the most brought on sub. Yeah, so Milner's the most uh, used substitute coming on forty five times. Now, when I was looking at that, I had a sneaking suspicion it might have been like a De Jong or a Jeco through those Mancini years, um, but. Um, yeah, definitely James Milner, and that kind of makes sense when you want that kind of energy, uh, you know, being replaced. And also on the flip side of that, um, the most replaced player is David, David Silva, um, and he's the only player to have been replaced more than a hundred times, securing a well-earned rest on hundred and five different occasions. <laughs> so you've got James Milner coming on, David Silva coming off, and um, yeah, he, David Silva is obviously the most capped player at the Etihad as well. So his numbers will probably be higher. You'd expect them to be higher. He's um, made the most appearances at the Etihad with 216 appearances, and that's 24 more than any other player. So there's a there's a theme around those statues that are around that stadium, and they're definitely well earned, um, albeit more the modern era of the game. But if we're talking about achievements at the Etihad, Silva, Aguero, company, they're all featuring all these kind of metrics that we've looked at today. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's stick with the subs as well. Uh, who's who's warmed the bench for the longest? Uh, <laughs> at the you know, we, we, who, who sat on that bench without coming on? And yeah. I'm, I'm going to make you take the goalkeepers out of this because they're really, really easy targets for this sort of stuff. 
So if we look at um, just outfield players that were like probably dancing in front of the manager, trying to get catch their attention and not really being uh, lis listened to, you'd you'd be looking for Alexander Kolarov, who is the highest outfield player with forty two times that he didn't get on. I was expecting someone like Glauber Berti to be up there. He was famous in City folklore for not being able to get off the bench, but that was yeah, only one season. Only there a season. It can only yeah, be yeah. it can only be nineteen maximum. But he definitely exactly. came on on the last day. So yeah, it's got to be eighteen maximum. 40, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he doesn't even feature in the top twenty five. There you've got, like I said, Collar off there, uh, Zabaleta's up there, and Gail Cliche. So there's something around those right backs and left backs that were being ro rotated through um, Mancini's area because Mika Rich is up there with thirty. Neda Manua, friend of the show, um, thirty three times he, he was he was on the bench with they were unable to get on so yeah the rest of the, the list is being made up by um goalkeepers as you said and so to finish adam uh, i know there'll be plenty that you've looked at that i haven't uh, even considered so uh, what what are the uh, what are the standouts from the 500 games at the etihad Yep, so Joe Hart's kept the most clean sheets at the stadium with 80 shutouts, uh, closely followed by Edison, but I don't think he'll get that anytime soon, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, Mike Dean is the referee that's taken charge of the most matches and probably the one of the most influential ones, which was the Aguero moment in QPR. That was 33 times he's uh, held the middle there. Uh, annoyingly, United are the only domestic opponent to have a better record against us than we do against them at the stadium with our 10 wins versus their 11. So let's keep an eye on that one uh, in the coming seasons. Um, we scored the most goals against Aston Villa, 54. Oh, if, that, yeah, but, that, that one doesn't surprise me, actually. <laughs> if, if we look at it, but if we look at it at a goals per game basis, then the 3.6 goals were scored against Burnley on average. Each game is the highest against anyone that we've played at least four times against, but Villa have conceded the most. And on that theme, we've kept more clean sheets against Aston Villa, which is 10, than any other team. They're the only team so far to have reached double figures in that respect. And uh, even on a clean sheets per game basis, they come out well on top at 0.53 games per clean sheet. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're quite meek when they visit us, but no doubt that'll come back to haunt me in a, in a season or two. If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. That was Adam Carter from statcity.co.uk talking me through uh, the weird and wonderful numbers of the last 500 home games, City's 500 at the Etihad. Um, we're going to now preview the upcoming game against Leeds. I know it's a little bit of a while away, uh, and but Christmas and New Year has really, really messed with the podcast schedule. So we're, the next show will be after the Leeds game, uh, which means we need to preview it on this one. Um, Rachel, you know, it's it's the 28th of, uh, of December between Christmas and New Year. A little bit more of the squad should be back for that one. How are you starting to feel now about, uh, about about this one? It's it feels like a really really tough reopening of the season, doesn't it? It is, yeah. And I've already alluded to the you know the tough run of games that we've got. There aren't any easy games in the Premier League, as the Brentford result showed. You know, anybody can beat anybody at any time. I think for for me, we've got to get into a professional mode as quickly as possible and get back into our rhythm and start putting the pressure on, on Arsenal. We, we we cannot afford to drop any further behind them. I know it's still in our hands in terms of we've still got to play them twice, etc. But we need to get back to winning ways pretty quickly. So for, for me, this is a a good test. I think it was relatively easy last season. I think we we beat them four 0 didn't we? And it was quite a, you know, a, a straightforward um, game from from memory. But I don't expect much of Leeds this season. But at the same time, you've got to respect your opponent, and you can't turn up expecting to win. I think we probably did that against Brentford, and that totally backfired. 
Yeah. Um, real feel of potential banana skin about this one, Joe. And so I, I actually feel quite confident about this, to be honest. I think that I think that um, what what Marsh is doing with with Leeds is kind of it's a bit it's a bit similar to what Eddie Howe was doing with Bournemouth, where he's a, he's a, he's that bracket of manager where he's he's very good for that level and what he wants to do, and a lot of you know a lot of the way they play football will will probably do quite well against a lot of teams sort of in and around where Leeds are in the table, but ultimately he plays a brand of football that leaves Leeds quite open and you know. What we're what we're good at goes very well with what leads leave what what they sort of leave behind as a risk of playing the attacking football they do. I'd expect us to score you know multiple goals here. Like you know these are the kind of games that we score that you know as Rach said that you know we beat them four 0 back in April. We should be expecting to get that kind of goal difference up from this game. Get Haaland back in amongst the goals. Just get the you know get the World Cup return started with with a big win, especially with the. The form it's difficult to really know how much the form plays into it going in, you know, after a World Cup break. Um, but Leeds have not had a very good start to the season up to this point. I think they only have 15 points at the moment, so we should really be looking at Leeds and thinking, yeah, this has got to be, this has got to be three points. There's, there's, there's nothing else. There's nothing else to it. And I think that honestly, with 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 the number of players that we'll have back from the World Cup at this point, I, I would be I'd be shocked if we don't get three points. To be honest. Yeah, I mean, having said that, Rach, um, Joe says 15 points for Leeds this season. 11 of them have come at Ellen Road. They are they are very much a home team this season. They are, but as, as Joe's just said, you know, their style of play should suit us. I don't expect them to sit with 10 men behind the ball. You know, that, that's the kind of game that we typically come unstuck in when we don't break those teams down early on and then we get caught out on the break. I don't think that's how Jesse Marsh has got them playing. And I don't think that if they set up like that, that the Ellen Road crowd would take too kindly to it. So it might just work in our favour, like Joe said, that it's, you know, open and, you know, yeah, they've got a good home record, but they they are pretty inconsistent as well, though, aren't they? And I think they've been relatively unlucky with injuries again. With with Bamford, is Bamford still out? I'm assuming yeah. he might be back now, mightn't he? But you know, Bamford's out. They've sold Phillips, and with them selling Rafinha, moving him on in the in the close season, I think they're you know, they're, Bamford, I think possibly out. They don't necessarily have lots of goals in them. Yeah. Um, given, I mean, Rachel, we talked before about um, kind of when the World Cup could catch up with City. Uh, you'd said about the, the pressure to, to kind of get results immediately and not let Arsenal get further ahead. Uh, Joe, are you feeling that as a fan at this moment in time? Uh, yes, because realistically, as 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 Rach said, we need to get points on the board as soon as possible. Because obviously we do have that. We do have the fact we have to play Arsenal twice coming up. Um but we can't really afford to let Arsenal get ahead to a point where they can go into one of those games knowing that dropped points don't really matter. Like if we, uh, we want to be at a position where they're going to be terrified of us winning, so that the pressure really sort of ramps up on them. If they're five, if they're five, six, seven, eight points ahead, and they know that dropping three points means that we're we're still second, I think that I think that might sort of work in Arsenal's favour because it might take some of the pressure off. Strangely, even though obviously they will. They will lose some. Will you know? Will make up some ground on them. But I ultimately think um, that, that that having the pressure of knowing that if you know if they lose, we're going to overtake them potentially. That's going to be a, a, a game changer for me. But I think really, Arsenal might sort of suffer from from the second half of the season more than we will. Because I think Arsenal are kind of they're a bit like Liverpool in the way that they're very reliant squad wise on on a core of twelve to thirteen players that up to this point of the season, obviously with Jesus being injured over the World Cup, they've 
they've remained fit really. So we'll see how they now cope with with someone like Jesus getting a big injury at this point, and if they if they have to replace him, if they have to go into the market to replace him, and whether they get someone that then hits the ground running. Um, I think there's a lot of question the question marks over how Arsenal can handle the second half of their season. Whereas obviously fatigue aside and kind of the the weird nature of this season to one side, we know what City are like at the business end of the season. They generally, if there's points that need winning they generally get the job done. So I think Arsenal are probably the ones who've got more more pressure and more questions to answer than we do. Get a dollop of City nostalgia every Monday. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. We'll get uh, your predictions for this game uh, shortly, but first let's get a, a view on Leeds and their season so far from the Athletics Leeds correspondent, Phil Hay. It's been fraught, I think it's fair to say, this season. There have, there have been good moments in it, um, points at which they've played particularly well, actually. Chelsea at home in the first month of the season, I still think, is is the standout game. But the win at Anfield as well, just prior to the, the World Cup break, um, Big result, especially to to win there, a venue where, where Liverpool just just don't lose um, and 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 don't lose easily. Uh, but even that result um, was coming off the back of a, a really poor run of form, which quite honestly left Marsh fighting for his job. I think a lot of us felt after the the defeats to Leicester and Fulham back to back in the space of four days that he was in a lot of trouble. Um, and and I think I think he was and. There was some real early promise in the season, actually. They they beat Wolves on the opening day. They played well for an hour or 65 minutes down at Southampton um, on the second weekend and then turned Chelsea over really impressively uh, the, the weekend after that. But it did feel from there on like the air going out of the balloon. Um, and there have been issues with the team tactically, without any question, when you, you watch them, it, it's quite obvious to see where they're weak or, or where they're struggling. Um, as I say, that there have been slightly brighter moments too, but I think... I, th- I think Marsh managed towards the, the back end of the, the run of fixtures before the international break just to restore a little bit of calm and, and to reassert himself slightly. But I still feel that they're coming back into the season, um, starting with City and then Newcastle away. They're coming back into it with pressure on them, without a doubt. And they need the second half of the season to be considerably better than the first half or, or they are heading for trouble again. Yeah, I mean, in terms of... Uh, you say that the problems are obvious for, for people who are watching them. What are those problems? The way Leeds set up um, and, and the kind of philosophy that Marsh has is, is all predicated and based on transitional football. So the idea of taking advantage of turnovers um, via pressing and counter-pressing, playing very much the style that he learned um, in the Red Bull stable. He was manager of New York Red Bulls um, before coming over to RB Salzburg and then going on to, to Leipzig too. And he has players who undoubtedly work um in that system, Brendan Aronson, particularly who leads same from from Salzburg in the summer, Tyler Adams and others, but the setup, the four two three one um, that he's he's tended to go with, and actually I was at a friendly against Real Sociedad on Friday night when Leeds were set up in more of a four three three. So it will be, I think it'll be one thing to look at when they do return whether or not there's been any change to the system or, or kind of fundamental change to um, the way in which they're they're lining up. But they're a very narrow team. There's not a lot of width um, in the side. The three that plays in behind the centre forward is is very inverted. Um, it's more like a line of three tens as opposed to a ten and, and two wingers. Um, and what it means is that Leeds don't make a 
huge amount of um, of the wide areas when they're attacking with the ball. But because the fullbacks have to push on to give them, you know, some form of width, it makes them very, very exposed out wide when clubs counter um, and, and counter-attack against them. When clubs turn over the ball and are able to break, there does tend to be space in behind. Um, that's where they've they've been vulnerable, without a doubt. And it has been something that Marsh has struggled to, to get a grip of. Um, initially this season, they looked good defensively. They were tidy. The numbers were um, were pretty impressive, um, and certainly a, a step forward from last season when you know a really porous defence was a, a, a massive problem for them. Um, but if you look at it now, it's twenty six concessions from fourteen games, which is incredibly high number, um, and absolutely no better pound for pound than last season when when they were they were struggling near the bottom again. So there are things about them that are going to have to improve. I, I just think that when it comes to the style of play. It's very much embedded um, in Marsh. It's very much his style and, and what he wants to do. And I don't see him deviating from it significantly. It's just going to have to work better. Yeah. How, how's Ellen Road been? I, I just look at, at, at the record this season. 11 of the 15 points coming at Ellen Road. Um, is it is it becoming a little bit of a place where, where Leeds can get a little bit of a foot in and, and, and get some uh, get some points on the board? It it's been it's been good for a while actually as Ellen Road and the the one thing they found last season and I think part of this came down to the the kind of legacy of Marcelo Bielsa and the I guess the the capital that he had and and the reputation and respect that he had that the crowd really didn't turn um, for the the duration of his time in charge last season they did stick with it even though everybody could see that they were playing nowhere near as well as they had been at the peak and that the results weren't good enough and the, the league table was a concern there was this kind of I think there was this reluctance to see it end badly for Bielsen, a reluctance to see all the work and, and the progress that had been made um, lost to you know one bad one bad season um, and and you know, potentially some bad decisions in the transfer market or an, an ageing squad, you know, the, the things that, that tend to, to handicap a club and, and tend to catch up with them. It's been definitely more difficult for Marsh. It's been more tense for him. Um, again, I think Ellen Road has been pretty supportive this season, but the away crowd turned on him in a big way after they lost at Leicester um, back in uh, towards the end of October, November. And that, you know, that felt significant really because that is very hard and difficult to recover from as a manager um, when you, you lose the fans like that. And as I say, it has settled down slightly since then, but I do think there's this kind of underlying underlying unease um, and underlying concern about whether in the longer term this is going to work as it needs to. Yeah. What uh, what can we expect from, uh, from Leeds when City visit on, uh, well, on the 28th? It's going to be, it, it will be pretty fascinating to see what they do tactically because as is always the case whenever you play City, you you can easily get caught between two stools in that you don't want to be ridiculously negative because if you're letting City dictate the play and, and do what they do, then they will beat you and potentially beat you heavily. Um, but you don't want to be excessively positive and, and open yourself up um, to, to the talent that City have going forward. You almost need to find a middle ground with it. But I think you will definitely, definitely find, or I would be surprised if this isn't the case, a lot of energy from Leeds in the first 10, 15, 20 minutes. That tends to be what we get with Marsh. You know, a, a kind of fast start, energetic start, aggressive start that, that tries to stop City from, from settling. Um, it seems to me that the first goal will be absolutely crucial. I, I think if City get it and get it early, it'll be a really, really long night for Leeds. But the interesting thing within this season is that without any question, the better performances have come against the sides at the top end of the table. Um, they played very well against Arsenal. I think probably turned in the best performance Arsenal have seen against them 
this season. Um, they were good away at Tottenham before the international break. I didn't think they deserved to lose that game, um, but ultimately they did. They've beaten Liverpool um, away at Anfield. They they have almost been better in the games where clubs are willing to go toe-to-toe with them. You know, your bigger sides who back themselves and, and don't kind of set out to be negative or to, to sit deep. It, it's the games in which teams have been negative or teams have had kind of low block in which Leeds have sort of hit, hit a dead end, um, not being not being certain about how to break them down, how to open them up. So you could say on that basis that this game might actually suit them tactically more than some others. But I think you can't say that while disregarding the fact that City pound for pound are so much stronger. They have a certain man up front who you know could do a lot of damage um, to this defence. And also, you know, Leeds are, I think, highly unlikely to be full strength for this game. They've got a fair few um, selection issues, um, injury and illness, and that will, I think, leave them slightly short in certain areas. Yeah, I was going to ask about selection because uh, obviously the, the the talk is coming off the back of the World Cup. Who's going to be available? Who's not going to be available? Um, it, it seems to me like like this game is far enough away that uh, that the end of the World Cup for, for City in the most part will be will, will not be too damaging. Um, how about for Leeds? Has, has Leeds had too many players uh, off to to Qatar? They only had three. Um, Rasmus Christensen was there with Denmark and they were knocked out in the group stages. Um, Tyler Adams and Brendan Anderson were away with the USA. They made the last 16. Um, but while Adams played every minute out there, Adamson was used pretty sparingly. Um, and in any case, Adams is suspended for the City game. He was sent off at Tottenham um, the last game before we, we broke up for the World Cup. So he won't play. And that, you know, that will be a a big loss to Leeds um, in the centre of midfield. There's also a pretty big question mark over Ilan Melier, um, first-choice goalkeeper. He's got glandular fever. Um, and it's it's not to say that it's a particularly serious bout. Um, the club haven't spoken too much about where he's, he's at at the moment. But the problem with glandular fever is that you can't rush it. It's not something that you can fudge. It's not something that you can risk playing through. Um, if you look at interviews with players in the past, who've dealt with glandular fever, they'll talk about things like um, the, the danger of a swollen spleen, which means that it can be very vulnerable to collisions. And obviously, goalkeeper going up for crosses and corners and everything else would be prone to that. Um, so they cannot play Melier until he's absolutely ready to go and, and he's got, got the all clear from his test. So it's very possible that we'll have Joel Robles, um, the former Everton goalkeeper, uh, in, in goal for the, the City game. He signed on a free transfer in the summer, um, he's very much back up here, kind of experienced head with two younger keepers, Melier and, and Christopher Klassen, um, Norwegian, who came in a couple of years back. Um, but that, again, you know, that would be a, a, a serious, serious moment to be making your, your league debut for Leeds. Um, extremely, extremely difficult game. And there are others too. Patrick Bamford had groin surgery um, a couple of weeks ago. And while it wasn't a major op and he was expected to be back quickly, he's been fighting a game of fitness all season. I think it's Unlikely that he would be ready to start against City. Um, concern about Robin Koch um, in the centre of defence. They aren't um, they aren't full metal jacket at the moment, um, and you know that's I, not an ideal situation for for any game, particularly, but I think especially for for City. And it, it is, I think, it is slightly unfortunate for them that coming back into the season, the season resuming at a point where they do need to start getting results going. They've got City first, then they're away at Newcastle, which will equally be. In, you know, extremely difficult game. And after that is West Ham at home, which could have a huge amount on it. 
Yeah. Um, just for for any Leeds fans that have uh, that have found us, uh, we, we City have a little bit of a history with Joel Robles as well. He was the Wigan goalkeeper that uh, that won the FA Cup in uh, in twenty thirteen against City. Was. So yeah. yeah. So there's uh, there's it's not all uh, not all doom and gloom with him in goal when uh, when City come to town for certain. <laughs> um, Phil, let's finish with uh, a quick score prediction. We've got uh, the charity bet coming up. Uh, what what uh, what are you predicting for this game? I I would have to go with a, a City win. Um, I, the the slight niggle in my head, or the slight, I guess the, the the glimmer of hope is that Leeds have played better against the sides at the the top end of the league, um. But I think they'll find it difficult. I think City have strengths that will exploit Leeds' weaknesses, um. You you just have forever that image of Haaland in your head doing damage, um, scoring goals. I think it. I'm going to go for a two 0 City win. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was the Athletics Leeds correspondent Phil Hay. Uh, now, time to get some predictions on the board for the charity bet. Uh, we're raising money again this season for the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. I've been speaking to Nick from the group to find out more about what they do and where the money we win goes. I started by asking about the collections through the World Cup break. We realised very early on that we were going to have a long period of time with no collections. So we've really tried this season to count that as much as possible. We've actually only had seven men's games so far. Given the season started earlier before the World Cup, you know, four months ago in August, it would have been terrible given the state of everything at the moment um, with rising cost of living, mortgages, rents, everything. Uh, people are turning to food banks in numbers. With, if I'm honest, it's just a constant increase over the past 10, 12 years, hasn't it? So we've had five women's games, also one at Abbey Hay before the season, non-league in Gorton, and uh, one with the official supporters club, which has meant we've had uh, 14 collections in total, which has we've we're still waiting on official numbers back from the food bank uh, for some of the most recent collections but we're just about i can gauge it around 1200 kilos um which is yeah it's, it's it's incredible it's already putting us we're not even halfway through the season yet and uh we're looking set to smash last year's amount and i'm not saying that in a really really chirpy way it's um i'm i'm chirpy because it, it means that city fans are coming together more and you know I think everyone's experiencing a shared struggle. Yeah, I know. I mean, I was going to say this in in terms of um, collection and numbers. Like, like you say, it's been building over the last last uh, three years or so. Like you've been doing this. Um, how important have City fans been over that time? Massively. In terms, I mean, we couldn't do it without them. It's very. It's literally we're not anything special for doing this. We're just facilitating other City fans who feel the same kind of way, have the same community spirit, feel the same way about the club and what we stand for as fans. And we're just giving people an opportunity to do that. People are doing fundraising efforts all the time. The fact that people will take time out of their day on a match day, which is, you know, a very sacred thing for a lot of people and have been for, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, that they're taking time out of their day to come and donate. They take stuff from their cupboards at home or out of their pocket and uh, come donate to us. It, 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 it's massive. It drives us. It, it means that it gives us reasons to be there as much as we can on our weekend collections. And gives us hope that hopefully at some point in the future with enough support locally regionally nationally whatever we can do something to change this because nobody wants to be here none of us want to be here but while there are people in our city not able to put food on the plate for the kids and loved ones we're going to do what we can to support it along with 
our counterparts across the country. And uh, and as you said before, obviously, uh, plenty of collections through uh, the World Cup with the women's games. Um, there's there's no actual collections uh, with the men's games uh, before Christmas now. Um, how can people donate in the meantime if they want to? In the meantime, if you uh, go onto our, any of our social media, which is at MCFC Feedbank on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we, we have links on there. Um, and you can donate either directly to Manchester Central Food Bank, and that's who we collect for on our match days. Uh, they cover the biggest region of uh, any Trussell Trust food bank in uh, Greater Manchester, right far north as Mostyn, down to Rushholm and across the Garton. It's a huge, huge area. But we also have links there to a GoFundMe fundraiser with us and the United Fans Food Bank, which is feeds into the 19 Greater Manchester Trussell Trust food banks. So... That means that no matter where you are in Greater Manchester, it can be supporting it in some way. But we always recommend, look for your local ones wherever you are. Just put in a quick Google. You can find food banks, local pantries. If you can help out, give you time if you've not got money. But yeah, any, any, any way you can. It's uh, Everything helps. Um, uh, now, obviously, the, the next collection will be uh, the Everton game on uh, New Year's Eve. Um, what's If people are preparing for that, what's, what's good for them to bring? I will always say that they're looking for everything, especially at the moment. The food bank this year found it so hard because the cost of living increase. It's not just seeing a rise in people uh, needing the food bank and using the food bank. It's actually seeing a massive drop in donations. So they will not turn anything away. We always just say nothing that won't, that needs keeping in the fridge, You know, nothing alcoholic. Toiletries are always needed. Tinned meat products are always needed. Tinned fish, tinned vegetables, toiletries in the way of like nappies. Like, you know, when we had uh, one of our biggest collections this season, actually, was the other Sunday, the uh, women's derby. And uh, tons of nappies <laughs> were donated, which was amazing. Something else I'd always say, especially over the festive period, is um, anything that you sometimes would think is a luxury, do that as well. Jill, member of our team, she did an amazing uh, effort of sorted over 750 advent calendars and 100 packets of biscuits, which she collected at um, uh, Kerry Pritchard McLean's comedy show and podcast over October and November so like these are things that really put a smile on people's faces who are struggling right now it's all welcomed all appreciated this is the blue moon podcast listen to it drink it in That was Nick from the Man City Fans Food Bank Support Group. They're helping the Trussell Trust and our winnings from the William Hill Charity Bet are heading their way at the end of the season. Uh, we've raised £305 so far, so let's get something on the board for the next two games. Um, I am going to kick us off for the Liverpool game because I've gone for uh, somehow, Joe, given the players that City don't have back uh, because I hadn't even considered it when I wrote this down. Uh, but I've gone for a one all draw, which is uh, 6 to one and £60 if I'm right. Uh, Rachel, what are you having for this? I've gone for a two-all draw, City to win in extra time. I don't know if that's because I've been watching too much World Cup drama. I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. can't. Uh, we, we can't have too much extra time these days with uh, with tired legs. That's uh, not going to do anyone any good. But if it happens, uh, it's eleven to one and one hundred and ten pounds. If you're right, Joe, what are you having? Uh, I've gone three-one to Liverpool for this game. Um, I just think the the. the the level of team that we've got available to us, unless we're bringing in players who have literally just sort of landed in Manchester the day before. Um, yeah, I think Liverpool just got more of their first team available to them. So I think this might be one where a lot of people who might want to see us drop out of the Carabao this season may get their wish. Yeah. 
Uh, 25 to 1 if you're right, or 250 quid. Uh, has anybody been watching The Traitors? Um, sorry, I, just, I don't know why you made me think of that, Joe. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, it, it took me a second to sort of piece that together then. But yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, I, just, I, I, don't know what, I don't know where that thought came from. Anyway, it, pain, uh, it did pain me, it pained me to predict a Liverpool win. I just, just, just know that, everybody. It, it, it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, anyway, let's get uh, something on the board for Leeds as well. We heard from Phil Hay. He's gone for a 2-0 City win. Uh, that's 13-2 to two and £65 pounds if you're right. Joe, can you redeem yourself with this one? See, I've gone the reverse for this one. I've gone 3-1 to City this time. Um, I think maybe a defence a defence maybe not being fully settled by this point means we'll probably concede a goal, but I'd like to think that the goal, like going forward, Haaland I hope he's the one who gets our goal against Liverpool so he can go into the, the Leeds game. And obviously he's a Leeds fan as well, isn't there? So it's kind of written in the stars that he'll score at Ellen Road. I think that's just how it'll go. Yeah, I'll take uh, I'll take Haaland for all three, please, as my fantasy league captain, if you're right. Uh, Ten to one on a hundred pounds. Uh, Rach, what are you having? I've gone four uh, nil City. Haaland hat trick. If I'm, uh, you know, I don't know if he can do a double, <laughs> but um, I, I I just think he's going to be chomping at the bit, and I think the whole team or, or what what what's what I'm hoping by then we should be able to put pretty much a full strength out other than Alvarez, and I just think they want to put that Brentford result to bed once and for all um, and get get cracking again on the Premier League. I don't think they've got much firepower in Leeds United, so hopefully we'll take full advantage. So, yeah, 4-0 again like last season. Here, here, fingers crossed you're right. 12-1 to 1 and £120 if you are. Uh, remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. And for more information on responsible gambling, then take a look at begambleaware.org. This is the Blue Moon Podcast, and we're very sorry about that. Now, during the World Cup pause, we found out that Pep Guardiola has decided to stick around in Manchester for a bit longer than planned. As the games got underway in Qatar, we had the announcement that the City boss had signed a two-year contract extension, taking his deal to May 2025. Sam Roscoe's talking us through everything that's happened. It all started on the winter transfer deadline day in 2016. Before we finish, I'll tell you that I talked with the club and I finished my contract in the original date, in June. Or not a speculation about things, I, they are not doing nothing behind me, I know this one month ago. But I don't think it's good to this rumour and speculation about different things. I prefer to finish today, that's why I told the press, I told the players. And I spoke with the club two weeks ago that I will do it. That was out of the blue from City's former manager Manuel Pellegrini. Here's reporter Fraser Dainton on Sky Sports News. We got right to the end of the press conference and then Manuel Pellegrini literally just came out with it saying, oh, by the way, just to let you know, I'm going to be leaving at the end of this season. And within a few moments of that, we then got this press release, which has just been handed to me, saying Manchester City can confirm that in recent weeks it has commenced and finalised contractual negotiations with Pep Guardiola to become Manchester City head coach. The contract is for three years. That was in the February. When we got to the live podcast at the end of the season, it's fair to say City fan Richard Burns was getting excited by it all. You know, I hate hyperbole and I don't want to undersell it or anything, but I think this is the single best piece of recruitment City have ever pulled off. Like, I, I, I think it's sensational and it feels like the culmination of everything that we've worked towards since 2008. A bold claim from Burns, but it's fair to say his hot take was spot on. The hot takes were all over that episode. Former City striker Paul Dickoffs 
was pretty good too. I think you will be the Jesus Christ vicar. I really do. People are saying he's going to find it difficult coming here and it's different style of play, play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. He'll love that. I can really see, and I know being a City fan, you're negative most of the time, but I'm really positive about everything that I do, and I can see us now going on and dominating English and European football for the next four or five years. I really can. I think he's going to have that much of an impact in the club. Domination is the word. In the six complete seasons so far under Guardiola, City have won four Premier League titles, four League Cups, one FA Cup and two Community Shields. They've broken goal-scoring records, point records and achieved things never before achieved in English football. So, not bad. It's a pleasure to work in this, in this family, in this organisation, in this club and still I have the feeling, we have the feeling, with the players that we have because I am enjoying every day to work with uh, them, to be with them, to try to do our best for the coming years. That's Guardiola speaking to City TV in 2018 at the end of his second season. He'd won the title with an unprecedented 100 points and despite still having 12 months left on his contract, he'd signed a two-year extension, expiring in 2021. Like a manager, you have to be happy with the players. You have to be good, feel good. And I feel good with the players, with all the staff and we're trying to be ready for the next years. And his side were ready. City went on winning, a domestic treble followed the next season, and Pep's future wasn't thought about for a while, not until November 2020. I think fans and journalists looked at it and thought he could quite easily go at the end of this season. He didn't seem to be in the best of moods. The performances weren't great. I mean, the results were okay. But considering when City finished second to Liverpool, they scored more than 100 goals and had the most clean sheets and they maybe had one of those bad performances once every month. I seem to remember at the start of the season after, those performances were much more common. And then when Guardiola did sign the contract, he didn't really fix anything straight away. That's the Athletics' Sam Lee talking through the story of that second extension. The next game was Tottenham away and that was one of those, well, classic City against Tottenham games, I suppose, but it was that classic City performance of that time. And it was only after another month or so Fernandinho got the players together, I think Pep and Juan Malio, they got the staff together and everyone kind of thrashed it out between them. It was an interesting time when he signed that contract. Obviously, even at the time, it was the best news for the club for him to stay, but there were things for him to fix. It took another month to do it, but obviously they, they did it. That November, Guardiola put pen to paper on a further two years. Again, he gave his reaction to City TV. I have everything that I need. I saw many, many times in the bad moments how the people uh, here support me. We have a long talks this week and at the end we decide the best for, for all of us is uh, continue because still we have the feeling that still is not unfinished business and still we have a, you know, something to do, continue what we have done the last years. The deal took the manager to the end of his current season. The situation around his latest renewal was different. Unlike 2020, this time City were flying high and there were good vibes around the Etihad. The team were winning and the squad had been freshened up. And one performance in particular helped convince Guardiola to sign. They give enthusiasm, but they give it to me. We are not a team like make everything up and down squeak. So the enthusiasm, we have done it and after score there and see the faces of the people, our people. Uh, they give me now energy for the future. They give it to me. You know, after winning four Premier Leagues in five years, still there doing what they have done so far. That is the biggest prize, the biggest title we can get as a team, as a club, as a 
everything. Tell me you're signing a contract extension without telling me you're signing a contract extension. That was Guardiola speaking after a last-minute Haaland penalty and 10-man City three points against Fulham. Here's the Athletics' Paul Bias to explain more. Since the start of this year, probably when questions about his future were thrown, Guardiola kind of tried to avoid the topic and the question itself. But he always said that it depended on not just him, not just the fact that he's happy with his friends working at the club and the work environment, but the main thing was to really know that the players were still following him. Of course, this wasn't revealed to him in one game. It has happened in trainings, watching the daily attitude of the players, seeing the efforts that the club has done to bring the right players from Holland to Akanji. Fulham was the final assurance that all of this had happened. So it's not so much a case of unfinished business, more everything's going well. Paul explains Guardiola was late to the post-match press conference that day. It was produced by his personal choice to make a speech in the dressing room, basically confessing to the players how proud he was feeling and that this was the reason why he is a manager, to see performances and the kind of commitment that he saw. His words on the press conference were very telling uh, as well, but conversations between Guardiola and Manchester City had started well before that Fulham game. Guardiola had discussed with his family back in October that he was considering to stay longer at City and that probably they should make the choice together. And after signing, Guardiola said as much to City TV. This part was more involved my family more than ever because it's already seven years, it will be nine years and it's... Okay, it's, it's important to have the feeling that uh, they support me in that decision. In terms of sportive ways, one second the decision. So I said many times that I cannot be in a better place because in this period of seven years we were in bad, bad moments and I realised how they support me in these bad moments. That is what really, really counts. Assuming Guardiola finishes this latest deal, he'll have done nine seasons at City, more than double what he did at either of his previous clubs. Think back to when he joined in 2016. We all assumed we were in for the most exciting three years of our football supporting lives. None of us could have expected how long it would have lasted. Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast carry on doing so you're listening to the blue moon podcast you've made it this far so don't give up now that was sam roscoe talking us through the story of pep guardiola's contract uh, renewals down the years um rachel you must be relieved that he's put pen to paper finally um yeah i am i'm, I'm absolutely relieved you know it's it, it was a long time coming in terms of the rumors um there was a lot of conversation around who would be his successor, and I probably think that there isn't a natural one as yet. So it buys City that time to really be, you know, be grooming somebody in the background. But yeah, it, it comes as a big relief, probably. You know, the fact that it's greeted with fear by the rest of the Premier League and a, you know, collective sigh probably speaks volumes as well. That they were, you know, our competitors wanted to see the back of him, but yeah, he's he's sticking around. So. It's good news for him. It's good news for City. Um, but, you know, why wouldn't he want to extend? That's the, the big thing. You know, he's got the financial backing. He obviously likes the City. He's set up his business in, in, in um, his restaurant in Manchester City Centre. He's got the academy producing players for him, the world-class training facilities. 
the best number nine prospect in the world in Haaland. So, yeah, what what is there not to like? Where is he going to go and have anything better to do? Yeah, exactly that. I mean, Joe, the, the other side of this as well is uh, Sam ended his piece there by saying that, um, you know, we were all expecting when he signed the best three years of our lives. Um, he stayed a lot longer than that. Is it, it, what what do you think it is that has, that has meant he stayed around for, for as long as he has? I think... Well, if you look at the reason why he left Barcelona, it was mainly because of the basically internal politics that come with with Barcelona. You know, the presidency and all the stuff like that, and having to basically be a spokesperson for various presidential regimes that might be or might not be popular for whatever reason. And just, I think that the noise around the whole Mourinho thing happening at the time as well. Um, it was a really high pressure environment, and I think he just sort of didn't. It obviously, you know. Any top-level management job is is high pressure, but I think Barcelona in particular was a real goldfish bowl that just took its toll on him. Bayern Munich, on the other hand, was yeah, it's a big club and it's good, but how it, how interesting can the Bundesliga be after a few years? Like it's it's not that. I think the only thing that he had really to aim for every year was the Champions League. And I think we all know now from his time at Manchester City that Pep Guardiola is really not keen on jobs where his only definite, his only defining achievement can possibly be winning the Champions <laughs> League. Um, so I think you know that 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 was never really going to be something that was a long-lasting thing for him. Whereas here he's got, you know, he's got his mates running the club. Basically, I think he's got everything he could possibly want in terms of the structure around him. He's got. I, I imagine if he says to the management that he wants a player, they'll do everything they can to get him within reason and within budget constraints. Um, he's never really going to be in a massive battle with the higher ups or anything like that. Is they all seem quite aligned in terms of the strategies and stuff like that. Um, he likes the city. I think he likes the fans. I think finally, after you know, after the casting in particular, he like he understands the fans and has that sort of that connect the connection with with us and a lot of things that maybe annoyed him at the start, like our dislike for UEFA and our dislike for you know the the quote-unquote established elite of football and things like that I think he's despite having come from a club that is very much the established elite finally understands maybe why we we have that opinion and I think stuff like that just kind of really helps him buy into the club generally long term and you know it's it's as Rach says like you know the 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 squad that he's got in front of him there's no I can't imagine a world where you sign Haaland and then 12 months later you think ah no I'm off like you you just can't do that I think he's, he's he's got everything he needs to be very successful for I mean, God, yeah, he, he could do it for the next 10 years and he'd basically have a constant rolling, um, you know, a constant conveyor belt of, of players to, to basically win titles with. I think it's just, it, it's it's perfect for him. He will go, I, I think he'll do 10 and leave. I think maybe another extension's on the cards before uh, before he does go. But um, I would be per- I would be very happy with 10. It's I think, like you say, none of us expected 10, but every, there's every reason why he has. Yeah, Rach. I uh, I saw a tweet from an Arsenal fan friend of mine um, when when on the day that the the news was announced uh, that basically said uh, something along the lines of, um, "Oh, just go home and spend some time with your family, for God's sake." <laughs> well, that's what I was referring to when I said about the collective sigh of the fans. You know, that tells everything, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And it, it, it I mean, it is phenomenal what he's already achieved, and even. Um, you know, you look at all the silverware and that's fantastic. But even if you look at the way that players, that other teams set up and play now, for me, a lot of that has been Guardiola's influence as well. So if you look at, you know, now, you know, defenders are all expected to have real technical ability and be brilliant on the ball. And, you know, the goalie is passing out from the back. That that wasn't something that was 
you know, that was mainstream in the Premier League or in lower league football. You know, I go and watch Altrincham quite a lot. And all this hit and hope now, you know, long ball game, it's all gone. And I think a lot of that is to do with the the brand of football that Guardiola has promoted um, since he's arrived. I just hope that he does go on and win the Champions League. I know we've got a lot of apathy towards that as a as a tournament and UEFA, etc. However, I do think that his legacy as a, as a manager at City will be slightly tainted if he doesn't go in on and win it. And I think the fact that, you know, we had that opportunity against Chelsea a couple of seasons ago and, you know, that still taunts me even to this day. And then that last 90 seconds against Real Madrid last year, you know, we've we've come so close. I, I just think he, he, I expect once we've won, won that trophy, I think is, yeah, my work here is done. Mm. I feel like the the horrific ways we've gone out in the Champions League have almost sort of made him, it's like when we lose and go out of the Champions League, he goes, ah, you know what? I could probably do another year here, you know. I don't know what it is about I don't know what it is about that sort of that the the, the disgusting ways that we've managed to go out of that competition since he's been with us, but he seems to love it. I don't know what it is, but it makes him it just makes him want to stay even more. And I think you're right, probably when he if if we do win it while he's here. I think it was was it in his first season, was it in the hundred point season or the domestic treble season? I can't remember which one it was, where he basically said that if he'd won the Champions League He'd have, he'd have just packed it in there and then because he'd have been like, I've won everything. Like, what else do I need to do? So I kind of, I, I do kind of get that feeling that whatever, however long he's got left on the contract when he does win the Champions League, if he does win the Champions League, I'm not saying I'm not saying he will, but if he does, I think he'll just see out that contract and that'll be it. There'll be no more extensions after that. So um, yeah, I still, that, that's the kind of the horrible, the horrible dichotomy in it. Do you want us to win the Champions League and then lose Pep as a result of that? Or do you want us to just never win the Champions League again and have Pep have this relentless desire to stay and make us all feel good about ourselves regardless. Yeah, it's getting a bit Elon Musk here, so let's uh, let's talk about uh, the, the different. I mean, I mean, there's there is a, a thing, Joe. You referenced it there um, about how his team played previously with the hundred point season and, and the domestic treble season. It feels like there's there's three very distinct eras of Guardiola at City, and we, we talk about the early days where they got hundred points. They played really wide wingers. They had Sane, Sterling, Aguero across the top. Uh, that became inverted wingers towards the domestic treble season, and, and and kind of we had a mixture of both, and and um, uh, and he was successful there. He then had that season where he wasn't very successful. He he turned it around into a, a team that was that was then very controlling on games, and we started playing with false nines and 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 really strangling games, but strangling them in a way that is not Sam Allardyce football strangling. It's it's Pep Guardiola strangling. You strangle it with passes and good football, and. I'm just wondering, Rachel, do you, do you feel like with Haaland in the team now, with Alvarez coming in and maybe a partnership forming there, we could be entering a fourth era of Guardiola? Yeah, I mean, we we, we could be. I mean, it, it was amazing that we achieved as much as we did without a recognised striker. I mean, you know, when you actually look back now and think what our top goal scorer was scoring and... and um, the fact that we were playing that with that with that false nine, and there was a lot of debate around, yeah, but you wouldn't have as much possession or see as much of the ball because effectively you play with another midfielder and you're so fluid, etc., etc. If you once you've got a striker, these chances won't come. Well, I think we've put that to bed pretty quickly, haven't we? We <laughs> with Haaland's, um, you know, Haaland's scoring record. So, yeah, it, it it is the start of a you know of of another, like you say, another era, another tranche, uh, another style of of play. 
you know, ultimately, I don't really care how we win to be perfectly blunt, so long as we, we, you know, so long as we come out on top. It's you know, the fact that we get to see such great, and, and that, that's another thing that sort of struck me watching the World Cup as well is that we are so spoiled as City fans. The quality of football that we see week in, week out is on par, if not better than anything served up at international level. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it takes a World Cup sometimes for us to sort of sit back and take stock and think about how lucky we actually are. So, so yeah, whether, whether he tries to reinvent it again, I think he likes to keep us on our toes, he likes to keep the, you know, all the media and the thinkers and the analysts and everybody on their toes, doesn't he? So, so yeah, why not? He probably will reinvent it again. Yeah, Joe, as, as Rachel was talking there, she just reminded me that actually Guardiola has ruined football for me because I don't and I don't <laughs> enjoy games that he's not in charge of anymore. You know, I, you can sit me down and watch most football games now that don't have a Guardiola team in and I go, God, this is rubbish. Yeah. Oh, tell me, tell me about it. I watch Oldham every other week, so I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty awful. Um, yeah, I think, um, I, I think, yeah, he's he's just taken football to a level that when he when I remember when he first arrived, the first game I went, I was at the first game at the Etihad when he was when he was in charge against uh, was it Sunderland we were against yeah. that first game, um, and I remember seeing Pablo Zabaleta and. Cliche, I think it yeah, was yeah. playing. It plays in plays inverted fullbacks for the first time. I was like, oh my god, what is this guy doing to the foot? Yeah. Like, and, I, and I came, I came, I stepped out of the stadium, and I was like, this is like, I've seen it on TV. I've watched Guardiola's teams play football before on TV in the Champions League and stuff like that. But I think that was kind of watching those two players who I thought of as very sort of traditionally wide set, wide fullbacks who aren't really that technically gifted, but you know they they just got the width and the crossing and stuff like that I, watching those come inside and play in midfield I was like oh my god what's Guardiola going to do to this squad and you know Delph at left back Zinchenko at left back like anybody any anybody but a left back at left back like I think that's what we've uh, you know that's what he's that's what he's done for us and you know we're at a position where I think um, you know like Rich said before as, some, as someone who's watched League 2 football last season and now non-league football this season like you know the, the, the quality of, you always assumed I assumed at that level opposition was going to just be Target man up front, hoof it up, see what happens. It's not everyone, everybody, pretty much every team that we've come up against is playing passing. Their keepers are passing it from the back. They're not. They're not playing long balls anymore. And I think that's the level that Guardiola sort of brought. This obviously, you know, there's Klopp and other players and other managers like that have helped as well. But I think Guardiola's very much been the flagship of of you know making that kind of football just the norm wherever he goes. I think you know the look at the football that on international level, Spain are playing that kind of football. Germany are playing similar. Well, maybe they're not great at the moment, but they're playing a similar style of football. Um, and yeah, now England are sort of slowly approaching that. Um, I think we're at the point where wherever he goes, he just changes football, and that's just the kind of manager that he is. Yeah, if my uh, if my six aside team are telling me to pass it out from the back, then things have cer- certainly st- <laughs> somewhere along the line somebody's uh, somebody's been watching too much Guardiola football because I cannot use my feet to save my life. Um, that brings us to the end of this first Blue Moon podcast of the second half of the season. We'll be back after the Leeds game next week between Christmas and New Year. But first, there's the usual quiz episode coming up on Christmas Day, so stay tuned for that. Don't miss it; it's the usual good fun. Thanks to my guests for this week's show, Joe Butterfield. Thank you very much, and congratulations on the award. By the way, I didn't say that at the start but yeah oh, uh, well done stop it it's supposed to be a I know you don't fun. like to mention yeah. it but uh, yeah, here we are <laughs> yeah uh, and thank you very much Rachel Hudson oh thanks for having me and Merry Christmas everyone Merry Christmas indeed stay tuned for a clip of this week's Patreon bonus show as well we'll see you soon that was the Blue Moon Podcast Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. 
You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. And there was a bit of tension there, which promoted the scenes that we all saw of when Sterling scored uh, in the last minute. But obviously I was I got caught up in it and I was the guy on the floor that Aguero came over to help, uh, who was obviously arrested and then uh, that was obviously later dismissed. So what, um, I mean, obviously the fans were on the pitch. What did Aguero say to you? Did he, did he speak to you at the time? Yeah, he asked if I was all right. Um, I was, com- I didn't, I didn't know what happened. I knew I hadn't run on the pitch and that I was pushed on. But then all of a sudden I kind of, you know, the pain I was feeling with the the attention I got from the stewards and the police, I suddenly realised I was not like at the side of the pitch, like quite far on. And he came over and made sure was, I was okay. And then was obviously remonstrating with the, um, the steward mainly and the police. Um, and it was just surreal because I looked, I was obviously the head was in the floor and then I looked and saw his boots and his um, socks, realised immediately who it was, I could hear his accent. And yeah, I've, um, since, well, then uh, I was obviously taking out the stadium and stuff. And when I eventually got my phone back, I realised just how big of an incident it had become. You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. And join us again next time for another episode. <laughs>